This week we are beginning a new series at Grace Church titled Growing in the Gift of Prayer. And we're praying that God will use this series to grow our understanding of prayer, to strengthen the prayers that we make, to unite our hearts to his purposes, and to raise in us a desire to go to him in prayer. Prayer is a vital part of the Christian life, and it holds an integral place in the life of a church. A.W. Tozer says this, the creeping wilderness will soon take over that church that trusts in its own strength and forgets to watch and pray. Church, prayer is our lifeblood. And over the next several weeks, we are going to have a concentrated focus on prayer. On Friday mornings, we will look at types of prayers that we should make. We'll look at how to pray with the scripture. And we'll seek to answer any questions that you may have about prayer. If at any point in time over these next several weeks, you have a question about prayer, we would encourage you to email the elders at elders at gracechurchabudabi.com. And we will seek to do our best to answer those questions some point in time over this series. We will also have our annual prayer week in two weeks, starting on 11 January. On 11 January, we will begin our day with a call for everyone at Grace to fast together. And then we'll gather together for three hours of prayer in the afternoon from three to six here at the Radisson, followed by a time of fellowship Afterwards, where we break the fast together at Yasmol Food Court. Then during the week after that day, we're going to call on all at Grace Church to spend some time focusing more intently on prayer. And we're going to provide opportunities every day to go somewhere and to be with the body and to pray together. Our home groups will be dedicated to prayer. Our DNAs will be dedicated to prayer we want that week to launch us into this new year. And our hope is that through this series and through this week of prayer and maybe other things that the Lord leads us to do, our understanding, our desire for prayer will grow. We'll see more people come on Friday mornings early and pray for the church services. We'll see more people dedicating time throughout their day to pray for the members of the body of Christ. That is our desire. And today we will be looking at one of the most well-known passages on prayer in Matthew 6, 9 through 13, where we see Jesus teach on how to pray. There's no better place to begin than sitting at the feet of Jesus when we want to know how to pray. I would encourage you to personally study verses five through eight at a later time because they connect to this passage, but for the sake of our purposes this morning, we're only gonna cover the prayer itself in verses nine through 13. The prayer that Jesus encourages us to make can be divided into two parts, with each containing three petitions. So we're gonna primarily focus on its six petitions this morning, but before we get there, I think it's valuable to closely consider the opening to this prayer that Jesus encourages us to make. 
And before we read this, I want you to picture that you're gathered with the crowd to hear the Sermon on the Mount. And you're sitting at the feet of Jesus. And he has taught on how you're blessed if you receive persecutions. He's taught on how you're a light and you should shine. He's elevated his teaching so much so that people are amazed by his authority. And then he says to you, in verse 9, pray then like this. It comes at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And you'd be left with nothing else to say but, yes, Lord, teach me how to pray. Look at how he begins this prayer. He says, our Father in heaven. Church, this is a magnificently astounding opening that Jesus gives to our prayers. Just start by thinking of the words, our Father. Those words are a beautiful reality that I wonder if we have really taken hold of. You see, Father was a rarely used title for God in the Old Testament. And even when it was used, it was mostly used as an analogy and not as an address. In contrast, Jesus addressed God as Father about 60 times in the Gospels. Paul tells us twice in Galatians 4, 6 and Romans 8, 15 that we can call God Abba, Father, which means dearest Father. God as Father communicates a position of intimacy and fatherly care for us, of close communion with. And so when Jesus teaches us to pray our Father, he is teaching us to lay hold of the close communion we have with God of the universe. How can we possibly have that kind of communion with God? Listen to what John 1.12 tells us. To all who did receive him, being Christ, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. You see, by receiving Christ, by having faith in his name, we have the right to call ourselves children and to expect for God to respond to us as a father would his children. Faith in Christ places us in an astonishing position before God. Yet it goes even deeper when we add the words in heaven. In heaven reminds us of God's position of rule and authority over all of creation, of his loftiness, of his majesty, God being high and lifted up. And I agree with John Piper who says this opening shows that God is both majestic and merciful. So you see, church, when we pray, our Father in heaven, we acknowledge the overwhelming reality that the God who extends beyond limits is in communion with us and cares for us with fatherly affection. Don't let this opening just pass by you. Think on the amazing reality that you can approach God and call him Father. And this opening then sets the stage for the rest of this prayer 
because of it communicating both God's majesty and his mercy. So notice then each petition together. Let's start with the first in verse 9, where Jesus encourages us to pray for God's exaltation to increase. Look at verse 9. Jesus says, pray then like this, hallowed be your name. What does it mean to pray, hallowed be your name? Hallowed is not a common English word. We don't go around saying hallowed very often in our society. In fact, what is very interesting about this prayer is that as our translations have sought to bring it into more common English over the years, what has not changed is the word hallowed. It's because there's no common English word that really communicates the sentiment of this word. The Greek word means to declare to be holy or sanctified. William Barclay says this petition means let God's name be given a position which is absolutely unique. And church, to give God's name an absolutely unique position is to exalt him above everything else. To place him as first importance. So when we say, hallowed be your name, we're saying, let your glory, let your exaltation increase. Now this doesn't mean that we're praying for God to be more glorious than he is. God is infinitely glorious, infinitely majestic, and his glory perfectly radiates from his being. This request means that we're praying for our hearts to see more clearly the glory and the majesty of God. Think about it this way. It's like going out to the fossil dunes at night and seeing the stars blanket the whole sky. You see, if you see that, it can cause some amazement. But then imagine you grab a telescope and you take that telescope with you and you set it up and you look at the sky. You start to see constellations forming patterns. Maybe you can point out the Big Dipper or Orion's belt and you're a little bit more amazed. Then imagine if you had access to the Hubble Space Telescope and it reveals that these stars make up beautifully elaborate galaxies. And as you look at it, your breath is just taken away. You see, the grandeur of the stars grew each time, but the stars didn't change at all. What changed is our ability to see them more clearly. That is what it's like to pray, hallowed be your name, is to say, God, Make your name so great and so clear in my mind that I see it more exalted. That it brings my heart more joy. That it causes me to treasure you more. To place you above all else. So when we pray, hallowed be your name. We're longing to see God's exaltation increase. Look at the next petition in verse 10, where Jesus encourages us to pray for God's kingdom 
to spread. Jesus says, pray then like this, your kingdom come. And the kingdom of God is his reign over the hearts of men and all actions in the world. But the interesting part of this prayer as I've thought about it is that God already sovereignly rules over everything. Psalm 29.10 says, the Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. Jesus said in Matthew 28, 18, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So what is exactly does it mean to pray your kingdom come? You see, this is a desire for his rule and his reign to be made perfectly manifest. And it's a request that it such a way that it calls for an instantaneous and effective action. So primarily what I think praying in this way means is come Lord Jesus. This is the desire to see Christ return today and for his perfect reign to be so evident and spread. We want the day of Matthew 13, 43 where the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. Beloved, there is a day There's a day coming when the glory of God will be so perfectly evident that nothing else will matter. When his kingdom will be perfectly established and the righteous will shine. Church, is that a day that you long for? Or do you say, maybe 10 years from now? Just let me finish this, God. Let me do this first. Let me enjoy this first. We should say, your kingdom come now. Return, Jesus. Put away the darkness fully. Now, secondarily, I think this position is for God's kingdom to shine now through all who trust in him. To see his power and his reign over his people now as a glimpse of its perfection. To see the church come more in line with the kingdom of God and its purposes. So Jesus says, pray like this, your kingdom come. And as we do, we're praying for God's kingdom to spread throughout the world. Look then at the next petition at the end of verse 10, where Jesus encourages us to pray for God's will to delight. Jesus says, pray then like this, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This request is very similar to the one before it. Because if we're praying for God's kingdom to come and be perfectly evident around them, then we're praying for all to be obeying the will of God. Yet it's valuable to focus on this, and that's why it's a a third petition. And as I was looking at it, I go, what are you saying here? And I thought he's saying for God's will to delight hearts. That's why I use the word delight because of the comparison that Jesus gives to what takes place in heaven. Did you notice that? He says, on earth as it is in heaven. 
You see, in heaven, the will of God is perfectly obeyed, but it's also the angel's delight to obey it. On earth, the final blow to Satan has not been dealt, and his rebellious ways still influence this world. Yet in God's sovereignty, his will is still accomplished. God's will is still done. Isaiah 46, 9 through 11 says, I am God, there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purposes. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. Church, you see, the will of God is not thwarted at all by Satan or by people who don't obey it. That's the amazing reality that God is perfectly in control and sovereign over everything. But Satan, an unredeemed man, do not delight in obeying it. So when you pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, I believe we're praying that we would delight in obeying God's will. Like the angels, submitting happily to his word in all areas of our life. Maybe there's some area of your life where you're like, I know this is what God wants me to do, but I just don't want to do it. Pray your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Pray, God, make your will done in my heart. Change my heart to where I will delight to do what you call me to do. And pray for the world to be filled with those who delight in doing the will of God. Can you imagine what that day will be like? Church, God desires for us to be captivated by these things, these three things, and Jesus gives them to us first. God wants for our hearts to long for his exaltation to increase, for his kingdom to come, and for his will to delight. Those should be the primary desires of our hearts. I believe Kent Hughes rightly observes that the first three requests have to do with God's glory. God first, man second. His glory before our wants. You see, and I think as we lean into these desires, God is seen as majestic. He's seen as powerful. He's seen as good. And it shapes the remaining three petitions which deal with our needs. See, prayer understands our insufficiency and God's sufficiency. It acknowledges our inability and God's ability. Prayer trusts in the creator and sustainer of everything to supply us with what we need. And these next three petitions are very, very fascinating when we think about them. Look with me verse at first, first at verse 11 where Jesus encourages us to pray for God's provision to satisfy. Jesus says, pray then like this, give us this day our daily bread. 
Did you notice the nuance of this petition? The request focuses on our needs and not on our wants. This is not a petition for God to make us rich or to provide us with more possessions and shiny things. This isn't a petition for God to change our circumstances or give us an easier way of life. It's a request for God's provision of what we need. Notice that the request also focuses on this day. Give us this day our daily bread. You see, the petition is concerned with what we need for today and not tomorrow. It looks back to God providing daily manna for Israel in the wilderness and trusts in the Lord provision to provide what we need for each day. Later in this sermon, Jesus will encourage his disciples in Matthew 6, through 34 to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. He says, do not be anxious about tomorrow for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. There is a satisfaction in God's provision that comes when we learn to pray this way. And it shapes how we ask for things. It doesn't mean we can't ask for individual things, but there's a reason why we ask for God to provide and not just to give us what we want. Church, most of the time what I want is not for my good. But as I bend my heart to God, as I ask for his name to be exalted, as I long for his kingdom to spread, Then I begin to ask for the things that are for my good. See, when we pray, give us this day our daily bread, we are making a petition for God's provision of what we need to satisfy our hearts. Then look at the next thing Jesus encourages us to pray. To pray for God's mercy to purify Jesus says, pray then like this, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. When Jesus says to pray for the forgiveness of debts, he means our sin. Our sin places us in debt to God's mercy. Now this may seem like an odd prayer on this side of Calvary, Because the work of Christ on the cross proclaims that forgiveness of sin was achieved for all those who trust in Christ. So why then is it necessary to confess sin again and again and again? Why is that part of the prayer that we make? Consider how the Bible puts both of these things together in Proverbs 28, 13 and 1 John 1, 8 through 9. Proverbs warns us that whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. John writes, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And John is talking to believers. You see, sins affect. 
permeates every part of our humanity. And when we trust in Christ, the power of the Holy Spirit starts to overcome that sin. But there's still a battle that takes place in life. There's still moments when we fall short and we lean on the mercy of God. But if we conceal our sin and we deny that it exists, it wreaks havoc on our lives. It produces more sin. So we pray for forgiveness often, every time that we sin. We acknowledge our sin and we lean on God's mercy. And as we pray for forgiveness, the truth of the gospel, that God has pardoned our sins and forgiven all those who are in Christ, reminds us that when we pray, forgive us our debts, we pray that with the confidence of knowing God is faithful to forgive them and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Part of that prayer then, I think, is is also God purify my heart through this forgiveness. We see several times throughout the scripture where forgiveness has a purifying effect. Paul in 1 Corinthians tells the Corinthian church not to join themselves with prostitutes. And the reason he gives is because they have been bought with the precious blood of Christ. Think on the forgiveness you have and don't sin in this way is what he says. It has a purifying effect. And I think that's part of what is shown in the second half of this verse. It's a very fascinating qualifier. Did you notice it in verse 12? And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Let me ask you, can you pray that way? Can you pray, God forgive me as I have forgiven this person? God forgive me as I have forgiven that person. At first glance, it may seem as though our forgiveness dictates God's forgiveness, but that's not what Jesus is teaching. That's not what the Bible puts forward. So what is he teaching? Well, listen to Paul in Ephesians 4.32. He says, be kind to one another, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. You see, these two verses are really two sides of the same coin. And I think Albert Muller sums this up better than I can when he says, Jesus makes it very clear that the forgiven are the forgiving. And the unforgiving are the unforgiven. There's a purifying effect of the forgiveness of Christ that moves us to be forgiving people. Church, when we receive mercy and forgiveness, it purifies us. It makes us quick to forgive others. And when we're not quick to forgive others, it really is showing that we have not understood what we have been forgiven for. No one's sin against you will ever be greater than the sin you have committed against God. Nothing that anyone has ever done will ever be greater than what happened to Jesus Christ on the cross. God in his mercy has forgiven us of our sins. In his mercy, he has forgiven us of our sins. 
Are you having trouble forgiving someone in your life? Then think on the forgiveness that you have through the blood of Jesus Christ. Meditate on it. Meditate on it for days, for hours, until that forgiveness in you rises up to give it to others. And I guarantee you that if you can really focus your heart on the reality of God's forgiveness, you will be able to forgive others. So when we pray, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors, we are praying for God's mercy to purify our hearts. Lastly, look with me at verse 13 where Jesus encourages us to pray for God's power to sanctify. Jesus says, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. You see, this is the natural request to follow the one before, because when we truly understand that we have been forgiven, our hearts long not to offend ever again. But what exactly does it mean to pray, lead us not into temptation? Because the book of James tells us that God tempts no one. So if God tempts no one, how can God lead anyone into temptation or not lead them into temptation? That's the question. I think it's helpful to compare the use of the word for temptation in our passage with with its use in James. Matthew 6.13 says, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. James 1.2 says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. The same Greek word is used by Jesus for temptation, or Matthew for temptation, and James for trials. Context determines its meaning. Then later in James 1, 13 through 14, he uses the root of the word. This time he translates it tempted. It says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. See how James is trying to drive that point home? <laughs> Look at verse 14. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. So according to James, trials should bring joy because they test our faith and lead to steadfastness. The positive result of that shows that God is the giver of those trials. Satan would never want to give you something that's going to lead to steadfastness of faith. Temptations, however, bring destruction and they come from being enticed by our desires, which when conceived give birth to sin. So here's what I'm convinced the Bible is telling us. My encouragement is to spend time studying and seeing if if you agree. Everything that comes into our lives is from the sovereign hand of God. Even hardship and difficulty that we call trials. Everything. There is nothing that comes into our lives apart from God's sovereignty. 
And God in his goodness brings those things into our lives to strengthen our faith and produce steadfastness, which will yield the most beautiful reward ever. But there's a battle that still remains in our sinful nature, with our sinful nature. And that battle Satan uses to try and cause us to let those hardships or those difficulties produce sin. So this makes the cry of this petition in Matthew 6, Lord, keep me from my sin. Listen to how the beginning of Psalm 141.4 parallels this request where the psalmist says, do not let my heart incline to any evil. We are asking for God to sanctify us in such a way that when anything comes, we won't be tempted towards sin, but instead we'll be steadfast in faith. I think this is amplified in the second half of this verse when he says, but deliver us from evil. The word for evil describes evil that is actively harmful in its effect or influence. The idea then is God would deliver us from sins and temptations that are meant to entangle and harm us, to produce sin, and that he would sanctify us and keep us pursuing holiness. Such a needed prayer in our lives. And it's preemptive. Do you notice that? Lead us not into temptation. It's before the temptation ever arises. It's before anything ever comes at you. You are depending on the power of God to sanctify you, to stay away from that temptation, from that sin. So when we pray, lead us not to, into temptation, but deliver us from evil, we are asking for God's power to sanctify our hearts. So did you notice the needs that Jesus encourages us to pray for? God's provision, his mercy, and his power. Think about how different and freeing these kinds of prayers would be in your life. If you're not experiencing moments of difficulty now, where the things you face feel insurmountable, chances are you have in the past or you will in the future. Physical or situational problems, guilt over sin, battles with temptations, they all will come and the question is how will we respond when they do? You see, I think when our prayers deal primarily with a solution to the problem, I think we discover that our focus is on ourselves, on the problem or the situation and on temporary things. But when our prayers turn to God and they rely on his provision and his mercy and his power, our focus is on eternal things and God himself relying on him and his goodness. And it changes the way you think about the problem that you're facing. We have little yellow sheets out on the table that are called a promise for every burden, battle guide for facing, I should have written that down. Um, 
And what the design of those is, is to show you that the burdens on your heart, the things you face, the temptations to be discouraged or angry or worried or anxious are ultimately about your faith. Ultimately, what we need is for God to cause our faith to rise up, for our eyes to get off of here and up there, for him to fill us with satisfaction and joy. And as we do that, we find that these problems become smaller and smaller. They may go away. God may solve that one. Yes, pray for healing. Yes, pray for a new job. Pray for all of these things. But pray in such a way that your reliance is not on God just to meet that want in your heart, but it's on God to give you exactly what you need that is for your good, that will satisfy you the most. Oh, church, if we can learn to pray with this prayer, it will radically change our lives. It's a powerful prayer, and I hope we'll take hold of it. Now, you may be wondering why I haven't covered the doxology that may be in some of your translations in verse 13. Some of them have it in there. Some of them have it in brackets. Others have it in footnotes. I think the King James Version has it in there. The reason I haven't covered that is because the evidence found in manuscript study favors its exclusion from the original text. It leads us to believe that it was added as a later date. And I think what we really want to do when we study the Bible is focus on what Jesus said. The doxology is a beautiful doxology. It's one that I have no problem saying or praying even on occasion, but our desire is to say, Jesus, what did you have for us? Now, let me close with just one more observation and then one simple challenge. First, did you notice that there are no singular pronouns in this prayer? Read it again. Our Father, give us Forgive us, lead us, deliver us. All the petitions in this prayer either say us or our. There is no I, there is no me. And I think this shows that our prayers should always include concern for the whole body of Christ. They should always be focused on those around you Look around you, church. Do you consistently pray for these things for the people in Grace Church? That's why we covenant together. That's what it means to covenant together. And I can promise you that as you start praying in this way, your faith will be strengthened, your needs will be met, and it will change how you love and care for this body. It will change how you live in Abu Dhabi. It will shape how you give. It will shape how you speak. It will shape how you serve. Our prayers should consistently include the whole body of Christ. Prayers to increase all of our hearts and in all the world, the hallowing of God's name. Prayers to have God reign over all of our lives, to have us all delight in his perfect, wise, and loving will. Prayers to meet all of our needs, to forgive all of us of our sins, and make us a forgiving people to sanctify 
all of us and keep us from sin. Let's be people who pray for each other in this way. So here's the simple challenge for you this week. Every day of this week, make this prayer your prayer. When you pray in the morning, pray this prayer. When you pray in the afternoon, pray this prayer. When you pray in the evening, pray this prayer. Here's three ways to consider doing this. First, pray these words as they are written. Open your Bible to Matthew 6, verses 9 through 13, and take each phrase at a time and pray it for yourself and for this church until you mean it in your heart. Over and over and over again. Maybe you choose one each day. Maybe you take a petition each day and you say, I'm going to pray for this this day. After doing this, try to put this prayer into your own words. If you're praying, God, hallowed be your name, maybe instead say, God, make your name so great in my heart that everything else seems meaningless. If you're praying, give us this day our daily bread, you wake up and you say, God, you know exactly what I need for today, and I ask that you will Give me what I need and satisfy my heart with what you give. Finally then, after doing this, work towards memorizing this prayer to pray it more frequently whenever you face anything. Now what's interesting is if you really commit to praying this prayer over and over every day, you'll memorize it. If these are the words you're saying after that repetition, what, three a day, five days, fifth? Math is eluding me right now. Um, but memorize it. Put it in your heart. Put it in your heart to when you're facing some kind of trial, you're saying, God, lead me not into temptation here. Don't let sin be conceived. Don't, don't let this trial that you have placed in my heart lead me towards sin. Or maybe you sin, and you immediately say, God, forgive me. Cause your mercy to purify my heart. So my challenge is commit yourself to do this endeavor. Let's all do this for the next week, and let's see what the Lord does in and through our prayers. Please stand together with me, and we'll pray together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive the debts of others. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. God, that is the prayer of our hearts. Be glorified. In Jesus' name.